0: Let's go ahead and turn into Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our series on Sunday mornings entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. It is interesting to me the number of people who now question and wonder what it truly means to be a Christian. The true identity and the true d- definition of Christianity has become so distorted in American Christianity that we've often Uh, forget what it truly should look like. And as a result, we felt it necessary, especially dealing with the issues of the citizenship that we are contending with here in the United States of America, to remind ourselves what it means to be a citizen of heaven, a subject of the kingdom of God, one who is ruled and led by none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his introduction to the kingdom of heaven, he began with the Sermon of the Mount, because he knew and realized that the inauguration of the kingdom was going to be much different than what was anticipated by the religious leaders of that time, and therefore what the was anticipated by the populace of that time, because that's where the populace got their information, that was the religious leaders. So as Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as a Jewish person listening to those words, that would have been an extraordinary moment in their lives. For all that they had been waiting for and anticipated was possibly now going to come to pass. For the words of Isaiah, the words of Jeremiah, The words of Ezekiel, the shadows and implications that were painted for us through the law and the prophets were possibly now going to come to fruition. But understanding the arrival of the kingdom of heaven for those who were Jewish, they believed that it was going to be a return to the zenith or pinnacle of Israel's existence under the reign of King David. And that all of the world was going to come and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And Israel was going to be the epicenter of this new kingdom established in and through God the Father. But Jesus had to help them through the distortion to realize that the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven wasn't going to begin as they anticipated he needed to help them understand that in his first coming, he came to fulfill those prophecies of Isaiah of one who is a suffering servant. And then his establishment of the kingdom of God here on this earth would happen after his second coming. So as we wait in great anticipation for our Lord's return, let us remind ourselves of the role that God has asked us to Play here and now as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And to do that, we must once again refamiliarize ourselves with the edicts in which Jesus brought to our attention. After showing us who shall be blessed in the kingdom of heaven, who shall be uh, happy with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, he then goes on to say that our responsibility here on this earth is to be salt and light. That we are to be a beacon, a beacon that Israel as a nation never became in the Old Testament, to call people unto God and to show them, the people that is of the world, what it meant to be ruled and governed by God. But now, what Jesus is establishing is a kingdom not individually located in one place. But the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated in and through each and every person who follows Christ. Until his second coming, when Revelation chapter 21 tells us that his kingdom shall be, uh, 20 and 21, uh, his kingdom shall be established for a thousand years. But until then, we wait. And as we see Jesus painting, The profile of one who is a subject of the kingdom of God, we realize that it vastly contrasts that of the American Christian that we've painted for ourselves here and today. Unfortunately, many Christians have forgotten that we are not here to be served, but to serve. Unfortunately, we come to church now with the mentality of a consumer rather than one who is a communer with God looking to be a element of his body, hands and feet unto the world as a light and a salt in the darkness and in the depravity of our world. Unfortunately, people no longer come to church to hear the teaching of the word of God, to be equipped for the fulfilling of the service, the ministry in which God has called them to fulfill. Often we come to church to see what we may receive, how we may benefit. I even had one person tell me that before they decided on our church as their home church, they wanted to make sure that they were getting the most bang for their tithing buck. I told them that this is not the church for you. Christianity is not about us, it's all about Him. Let us remember those words that Paul said, and this verse keeps coming back to me each and every week during these troublesome times, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Paul saw himself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ with the ministry of reconciliation drawing those back to him and introducing Christ to them in hopes of their salvation and return to the Father. And through that, their sanctification and return to the perfected state that sin had so greatly mired and marred through the fall. Christianity is so much bigger than just a simple supplement to my life, isn't it? If we treat Christianity as simply a vitamin on our shelf that we run to in our time of need, we've missed the whole boat. For Jesus said unto the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Then what makes me any greater than Jesus? Should I not have that same attitude myself in my heart? What did Jesus mean when he said that for one to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow after me? Was that just something for his day, or was that for every Christian that lived afterwards? The kingdom of heaven is not about us. But for you and I who are participants and followers of Jesus Christ, let us understand that this world is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better throughout eternity but for one apart from jesus this is the best they're ever going to have it's only going to get worse from here so the very first thing that jesus needed to do was to remind the people that were listening to him of this That if they chose to enter into the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness must exceed that of the religious leaders and Pharisees of that time. That would have shocked the entire audience in listening to him. For their righteousness was the standard. And that seemed unattainable to each and every person who saw it. And then Jesus goes on to say that the righteousness that he required is truly that of perfection. Perfection that unfortunately leaves each and every one of us in a hopeless situation because we're not perfect yet, are we? Some of us would like to believe we are. But I still haven't gone to the card store and found, you know, welcome to my sanctification party. I am now perfect. Maybe someday you will be too. We're all works in progress, aren't we? And thank the lord that he loved us to he loved us too much to leave us the way he found us and that he's working from the inside out creating us and restoring us into the image of jesus but that being said the perfection in which jesus therefore describes in his teaching here was not to discourage them other than to discourage them to think that in and of themselves they could obtain the righteousness necessary to enter into the kingdom of heaven He was trying to lead them to Him. He was pointing them through the law to Him. And in chapter 5, he deals with the attitudes of the heart. And then in chapter 6, as we find ourselves this morning, he now begins to address the three areas that the religious leaders felt that they gained the greatest piety by uh, exampling onto the populace. And that was the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. I hope you'll join me there. And Jesus now continues after stating in verse 48 that in following his instructions, he says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard of righteousness that fulfills the requirement of verse 20 of chapter 5 if you look further back with me for i say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven oh but jesus you you've never seen the scribes and the pharisees and the way they give alms unto the poor Or they pray and they fast in the manner that they do. So Jesus reminds them. He says in verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Throughout historical Jewish literature, we find that the religious leaders really believed that these three elements of their lives demonstrated publicly earned them the credibility of personal righteousness. In fact, it did just the opposite. It created self-righteousness in and of the acts themselves. But giving to the alms was considered the highest valued attribute of one who truly says they are one who follows God. And giving to the poor is a good thing. But see, Jesus isn't just simply interested in the manner, I'm sorry, in the purpose of giving to the poor, but also the manner and methodology in which one does. For only God can review the motives of a person's heart and evaluate them openly. For Jesus knew that though the religious leaders at that time believed that they were gaining eternal life by these actions, in fact, the manner in which they paraded themselves demonstrated that the rewards had already been given by the people here on this earth and not by God the Father in heaven. So he says very clearly again, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. There are three distinct points of what Jesus is saying here. It outlines very well and very simplistically, but it's profound in its nature. Number one, charitable deeds are meant to be done by those who follow Jesus Christ. The charitable deeds was giving to the poor here in the context of our scripture. It was an act of love, and or in their case, an act of mercy. For the reason they considered it an act of mercy is because the Jewish religious leaders often were confused by the misfortune that one found themselves in. And let me explain what I mean by that. They believed that the misfortune that a person found themselves in, either the fact that they were poor and in a, in a Agricultural society such as this, being poor was very common because of how iffy the weather could be at any given year, how robust the harvest could be at any given year, etc. But those who were poor and maybe also handicapped in some way or disabled in some way, the Jewish leaders had concluded in their mind and heart that. It is possible that the reason this person is in that position is because they have offended God in some way. And of course, we see this through the Gospels, don't we? When Jesus begins to heal people, he asked the question which is easier, for me to say their sins are forgiven, or to raise up and take up your bed and walk? Or the questions that were given to Jesus when individuals were coming to him for miracles. Did they sin or did their fathers and before them sin? So the religious leaders, when they saw someone in such a uh, predicament, often wondered if giving to them was the best option. Because they didn't want to enable somebody who was being chastised by the Lord, and therefore they didn't want to prevent that person from possibly repenting of the sin in which they had committed so they called it an act of mercy that makes more sense in that context but charitable deeds are meant to be done by christians we are meant to carry out and to fulfill the needs of one another throughout the new testament paul referred to the church as the body of christ And literally, he saw the body as the anatomy of Christ being the head and us being the body, hand and foot, to continue the ministry of Jesus in this world after his ascension. And I believe that some of the healthiest churches and some of the healthiest Christians are individuals and churches that see themselves as churches that are there to equip the saints, To fulfill the work of the ministry. And individuals who do not come and seek to receive, but have a heart of giving. Now, I'm not saying this to try to raise funds for the church. I'm saying that a heart of generosity should be instilled in everyone who calls themselves a Christian. In fact, I believe we should be the most generous people here on this earth. Why do I believe that? Because I also believe that we are mere stewards of everything that we have, that God has blessed us with these things, and therefore we should not be reluctant to bless others who have the needs uh, visible to us. But if we come to church seeking to simply receive and to simply benefit ourselves from what is being said and done and so forth, then we're not going to be looking for those opportunities of giving. In fact, I think I read somewhere that it's better to give than to receive. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that the body of Christ is a vital part of any healthy church ministry. For example, I am one person If you didn't know that, I'm also, yeah. You're like, well, that's good to know, Pastor. I'm glad you know you're not a Trinity like some say, and uh, I'm one person. I can't get to all of you throughout the course of the week. It's just, it's just, I'm not physically capable of doing that. You may have needs and and need help in areas of your life that I am unaware of. So I rely on the body of Christ to also be the hands and feet of this church. That if you see your brother and sister in need here in this church, you do not need my permission to fulfill it. Love them and fulfill that need if you are capable of doing so. You don't need to call me and say, listen, I've heard that they're go- uh, this family is going through a very difficult time. They've lost their job due to the COVID crisis. And I'm wondering if I should help them financially. If you believe the Lord wants you to help them financially, you help them financially. Well, I don't have a whole lot to give. Well, remember that God gives you everything that you have, and you can't outgive God. I've always lived by that mentality. We need to be looking to seek to help one another. And it may not always be a financial need or a need of food, it might be just a need of an ear, just to listen to somebody and to pray with them. Take time to spend an afternoon with them because loneliness is gripping their hearts and their minds and they just need a brother and sister in Christ. We are called to do charitable deeds. Whatever that deed looks like because all of us are members of the body of Christ and serve in some way. So serve one another. Don't come to church seeking to be served, but come to church looking to serve others. Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, he talks about the issue of reward. The issue of reward is something that Christians know longer really discuss i i don't find this to be a prominent discussion amongst christians any longer the idea of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven seeing that our charitable deeds done unbeknownst to anyone else physically on this earth though seen by god is storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven When was the last time you had a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, you know, seeking and encouraging each other to store for yourselves treasures in heaven? This was imperatively important to our Lord for the fact that he said that where our treasures are, so shall be our heart. One of the pitfalls that American Christianity falls into, and when I say that, I include myself. I am not judging massly. I am just simply stating a fact. We, as the Church of America, need to get our eyes off the temporal and back onto the eternal. I once heard a message given that too many Christians in America are heavenly minded and no earthly good. That was one of the worst messages I've ever heard in my entire life. Because it set up a false dichotomy that it's either one or the other. Do you know that if I set for myself my sights on eternity, that the charitable deeds become that much more rich to me? Because in doing so, I am storing up for myself treasures in heaven, right? I'm looking for them more uh, earnestly and deliberately. I'm passionately seeking whom I may bless Not to uh, receive the rewards here and now, but storing up for myself rewards in heaven where moths and rust and thieves cannot get them. What do we have here materialistically that cannot be taken away from us? And therefore, what kind of treasure is it actually if it's something that we can be deprived of? But we as Christians must once again refocus our idea on the treasures in heaven. And understanding what that means. Now the Bible tells us in the New Testament very clearly what's going to happen. The believer, of Je- the believer in Jesus Christ will stand before what Paul called the Bema Seat of Christ. And at that moment we are then uh, evaluated by our Lord, not for the purposes of sin, death, and righteousness, for all of that had been settled in the cross, but in the motives of our hearts for the things that we have done. And those things we have done out of good motives, for the glory of God, for the betterment of our brother and sister in Christ, will be like precious jewels that will withstand the refining fire in which we walk through. But those things we've done with selfish motivations will be like hay and stubble and they will evaporate before us. Now the Bible goes on to say that as Paul then laid out for us, whatever is left from that moment of evaluation will then be garnished within a wreath of reward for us for all eternity. Now, I would like to say that we, uh, we keep that wreath for all eternity, but we don't. For Revelation chapter 5 says that our last act of adoration towards the worship of our Savior will be us throwing the wreaths and the crowns at His feet very interesting so some will lay those mammoth wreaths before the lord and other ones will throw twigs at them but our treasures in heaven is something that throughout the gospels you cannot escape and jesus said you must make this a focal point of your purpose for doing the charitable deeds in which you do why verse two therefore When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Historical scholars debate if this was a shofar blown on the city streets, Or if it was a large sum of money being given into what was called the trumpet offering within the synagogue. Um, Either way, the the outcome is the same. The purpose of such a demonstration was to gain the attentions of those around them. For example, let's say Jay goes out and he puts in a million dollars in Santa's kettle for the Salvation Army and then blows a horn so everybody can see what he's done. And then everybody claps, and Jay bows to everybody, you know. And Santa's overwhelmed, and he can, you know, knock off early because his pot is full. (laughs) Jesus would say to one, you have your reward. The adoration that you gained By the applause of men is all the reward that you shall receive for that act in which you have done. But if Jay takes his million dollars that I'm sure he personally himself could use but was provided by God and Jay was just merely the hands of that million dollars to take it to somebody who is either either, um, or uh, probably more in need than he is and just lays that there anonymously The Lord says, I've seen it. I've seen it, Jay. You've stored for yourselves treasures in heaven. But the religious leaders of that time demanded that their piety be recognized by the populace and would do such things to draw attention. And Jesus said they have their reward. So do not be like the hypocrites around you. Do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Hypocrisy has always been a great accusation against the church, hasn't it? Us playing a role that we are somebody that we are actually not. Hypocrisy in the Greek culture was seen in theater to one who wears a mask. Of course, playing a role within a play and acting as somebody that they truly are not. But there was another aspect of hypocrisy that was also known in the culture at that time. For pagan statues were a large commodity and a huge part of the economy in that era. If you go to the book of Acts, you find that the uh, reduction of pagan idols caused an economic collapse in Ephesus, and they tried to string up Paul for it. Wouldn't you like to turn our culture upside down that way? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Eric, you've caused the economy to crash. I did, yes, because no one's worshiping material possessions anymore. Well, good, you know they can't do anything for them anyway, but often pagan idols were so expensive to produce that if one got damaged in the production or in the display portion of that idol's um, existence instead of throwing it all away the sculptor would replace those broken areas with wax and it would look very similar to the stone or the marble in which they may be cut from until you get it home and put it outside in the sun and then all of a sudden the nose melts you know and the person now realizes that they've been ripped off these were illustrations of the idea of hypocrisy in that culture and jesus says do not be like the hypocrites Be genuine, be authentic, be real, and understand that the charitable deeds that you do for another are garnished unto God. And that's all that matters. Again, Jesus establishing a righteousness apart from the religious leaders of that day. And in verse 3 and 4, but when you do a charitable deed... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be, be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. What a beautiful sentiment. Christianity is not about us. It's all about him. And the way that we can this holiday season be the hands and feet of Christ is to look to see if my brother or sister may be in need and if I'm capable of meeting that need for them. Knowing that it's my God who shall supply all the needs that I have and therefore in that supply if I may help someone in need who is in greater need than me, then so be it. Let it be. Because I am just a mere steward of all that God has blessed us with. But notice what John says when he says this. But we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. This Christmas in the difficult year in which we have had. We know people around us are hurting. We know that people around us are overwhelmed by fear and worry and anxiety. We know that loneliness now has run its course like an epidemic along with COVID throughout the United States of America. What may we do to help somebody in need? Starting here amongst our brothers and sisters or brothers and sisters apart from this church. We love them too. No, I'm kidding. No, I am not kidding. Wait a minute. Misspoke there. Edit that. (laughs) Thanks. Glad I don't speak for a living, you know. But I really believe that we have an opportunity to have a remarkable Christmas if we allow the generosity of God to fill our hearts at this time.